Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, October 9th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this program, renowned presidential historian Michael Beschloss, in conversation with 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl, discusses how American presidents throughout history have led the nation during times of war. So I think when we first met, I interviewed you on Face the Nation. Uh, You have a great memory. It was like, I think Reagan was president. Something like that. Something like that. And, and I just want to put this on the record. You know, I'm so honored that Leslie would agree to do this tonight, especially on the evening of my pub date. She's promised me that the interrogation is going to be not quite as blistering as the ones you see on 60 Minutes. No, so. I, I don't know about that. All right. I mean, Taking been, my life into my hands. We've been friends for a long time. Long so time. So I'm probably compelled to not go that hard. All right. Let me, you you, you uh, always... Bite, take a big bite. You don't do narrow subjects. You do broad subjects. It's the way your, that's where your interest is. Uh, so let me ask a broad question. In order for a president to be great, to be up there in the pantheon, does he have to have a war? Uh, I sure hope not. Uh, <laughs> but there are some know. presidents who say that, and even Theodore Roosevelt, the irrepressible Theodore Roosevelt, whom I love in many ways, once said he was sorry he didn't have a war as president in order to test his skills and show uh, what he was capable of doing. And that's a pretty scary thing because presidents sometimes, and I'm not going to mention names, but are tempted to get into crisis uh, and may feel that that is the road to greatness, and that's when you a say, very dangerous thing. When you say you're not going to mention names, what is this? What about, about our promise? Of- <laughs> Yeah. President Trump has said, uh, actually, on more than one occasion, that the great presidents are those who get into wars. Uh, not a great idea. Oh, scary. Yeah. As if that's the only scary. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying not to shake up the audience, at yeah, least at the beginning. Let's be uh, calm around here. Um, so what is, did you do every single president you couldn't have? Uh, it almost probably seems that way. What, what the book is about is, is for those who, uh, since it's pub date, uh, I don't think anyone here has read it yet. Uh, it's about the presidents who fought major wars from 1807 to modern times. Uh, and there were about eight of them. And the idea is to be able to sort of read through this history and live through 200 years and see why we have gotten into wars, and in some cases, why we haven't. I'm not going to tell about the whole book. It reminds me of the guy. I actually went to a book party once, and the author got up, and I always think, I'll bet you we haven't discussed this. Three-minute talk by the author is about it at a book party. This guy spoke for 50 minutes. And he began by saying, in chapter one, I say, (laughs) and then chapter two, I say, and I went into the other room of the house the party was in. I said, everyone sit down and have another drink. He's only gotten up to chapter three, so (laughs) nothing like that. But uh, 
the first president who was tempted was Thomas Jefferson. I tell the story. In 1807, there was a, an attack by uh, a British ship called the Leopard on an American ship called the Chesapeake, and the Brits won. And uh, there was a furor throughout the United States. Why had the British done this to our ship? We should really go to war against the British. And had Thomas Jefferson been a different person, he would have done it. You know, he only had to open his hand, he said, and we would have had a war of 1807 rather than a war of 1812. But instead, he said, we have grievances against the British, but what the founders said when they wrote the Constitution is, let's try to write a Constitution that gives the war power to Congress so that America only goes into a major war if there's an absolute necessity of our national security and if Americans are unified and in favor of this. So there was no war. Uh, For that reason, I wish Thomas Jefferson had been president for about 200 years because a lot of other presidents had been tempted. And so what the book does is tells the story of later presidents through 200 years who were tempted, some for good reasons, some not. Is there a quality? Did you find out? Can we tell ahead of time who's more or less likely to march us off to war? And we're uh, not going to talk about the current one right yeah, now. We'll, we we'll yeah, we'll stay off of current events. Uh, being a historian, I have no idea who's president right now. So <laughs> if, as someone who does that, Leslie can tell me. We, we can go on from, from, from there. But one of the themes of the book is that there are too many presidents who get into wars in a way that they really shouldn't. I mean, one story, for instance, everyone know about James Polk. Uh, Mid-1840s, Polk became president, and he was desperate for a war with Mexico because he felt that that was the way you could get about nearly a million square miles of American territory, and the United States would stretch from the Atlantic and the Pacific. You know, noble aim. But the way he did it was, Polk was a liar and a cheat and had even worse qualities than that, but those were the ones to begin with. And he's got this wonderful diary, which I've read very closely, and he boasts about it, you know. Today I, led, I lied to this senator, and today I tricked my secretary of state. He Again, does? I'm not, I'm not predicting what later presidents might write in their diaries. This is <laughs> ancient history. But he actually wrote, I lied? Essentially. That's, wow. And so what he did was he wanted a war, and so the way he did it was he sent American soldiers down to southern Texas and basically provoked the Mexicans. The Mexicans attacked, and then Pope went to Congress and said, there, there has been this terrible Mexican attack against our territory. We need a war and a war that goes all the way to Mexico City, lasted two years, killed a lot of young Americans, including children of Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, who ironically and poignantly were anti-war senators who were against this. And the upside is we did get the million, nearly million square miles of territory, made our country what it is today, but the downside is he lied the country into it. There was no real Mexican offense against us, and attempted later presidents. I mean, McKinley in 1898, the Maine was sunk in Havana Harbor. We went to war against the Spanish for this horrible deed. Turns out Spanish had nothing to do with it. It was a boiler accident. Did he know Uh, that? He had very great reason to suspect it, but he was very happy because he knew that Americans would 
support this war that brought us the Philippines and Guam and subjugation of Cuba, brought us Puerto Rico, uh, a war that he never could have gotten otherwise, which brings us leaping ahead to anyone around in 1964? Anyone ever heard of the Gulf of Tonkin incident? That we, we were all uh, thinking that when you were talking. Yeah. Who do you so, give credit to as the war president uh, for Vietnam? The good, the good, the good no, ones, or no, for Vietnam. There, there are some good are you ones saying too. LB, Are you saying Kennedy or LBJ? Well, or? in August of 1964, uh, there were maybe a little bit more than 16,000 American advisors in Vietnam. Under Kennedy. Uh, under Kennedy and, and the beginning of Johnson. And also Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower, there had been the beginning of these advisors. The first American casualty was 1959, exactly right, under Eisenhower. But what happened was, and when you're writing about Johnson, I did these two books on Johnson's tapes. And for those who... Fantastic. In fact, Leslie was kind enough. She did... uh, Can I tell the the story or not? Yeah, oh, do tell the story. This is an aside. Leslie did a segment on 60 Minutes on my second book of Johnson Tapes, which was in the fall of 2001. And it was in October. And we were talking about this the other day. And we went down, you know, classic Leslie Stoll. We went down to the Johnson Ranch and talked about them while walking on the ranch. Lady Bird was nice enough to let us use the house, so we're chatting about the tapes and... LBJ and Lyndon's living room, and it was really box office. I mean, the segment was a work of art. Uh, I, I can say he she said, will not. No, said, I'm saying it because she made it. I was I just, see, the, I you know, he's I was. So, he's so trying to warm me up. Here. No, no, no. Not, <laughs> Disarm not, me. Not, 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 I'm worried about that interrogation. You see. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So anyway, uh, the segment was done, and even you said you thought that you know it, it had turned out well. It was going to be on the first sh- first show of the season. Yeah. That's right. October of nine. The only problem was before the show, there was a... He remembers all the dates. Well, this this one I really remember because it was first show of the season. There was a football game between my hometown Chicago Bears and the Cleveland team. And afterwards, the Emmys at 8 (laughs) o'clock. This football game lasted, not that I would remember, 47 minutes beyond the moment it was supposed to (laughs) last... And you couldn't delay 60 minutes because the Emmys were on at 8. So at 3 minutes of 8, we saw the last 3 minutes of 60 minutes. So I saw Leslie's name and her producer. So at least saw the credits. Uh, <laughs> but, through, but no Beschloss. <laughs> this was completely inescapable. And the book was coming out two days later. The happy part of the story is Leslie shows what kind of a person she is. She went to Don Hewitt. And I legendary, cried. And basically <laughs> used her persuasion. Uh, and he said it was a great segment. Why don't we do it next Sunday? And it was aired the next Sunday, and everything was absolutely great. They reran it. It yeah. was a great... So anyway, we, well, we go back I, a while I, on the Here's Johnson what I'm tapes, remembering. So. I'm remembering that we went into Lyndon Johnson's closet. Right. And we saw his pants all right. lined up. Uh, he, he and am had, I allowed to talk about those? Or yeah, not? please. Is I mean, this, was, this is a little raunchy before dinner. Is that okay? You've been duly warned. These trousers were from the Hagar Slacks Company, the ones I was trying to look for for Leslie. And, and the tape in question is summer of 1964. Johnson was on the ranch. Some of you may know this one. I put this in, I think, the first book I wrote on this. And Johnson calls up Mr. Hagar in Dallas and 
this elegant audience. I can't tell you the whole thing, but he <laughs> says to Mr. Hagar, Hagar, these slacks are great. I wear them on the ranch, but they're not quite comfortable. Oh, yeah. They ride me when I shit. <laughs> and, says, uh, and he goes into extreme anatomical detail to describe why they're not comfortable. Uh, I, I think the one line I can repeat tonight is, uh, when I wear the store-bought kind, they're like riding a wire fence. So Mr. Hagar <laughs> got the idea and had some free custom-made uh, Hagar slack sent off to the president. Everyone was happy. So anyway, the book came out, and... Uh, about a month after the book came out, Lady Bird was still alive and doing well in Austin and gave a, a, a party for me, book party. And I said, Mrs. Johnson, were you happy with the way the book came out? And she was no nonsense. She said, well, Michael, I probably could have lived out the rest of my life happily without hearing you play the Hagar Slacks tape on television. <laughs> and she said, but, she said, you should know that Hagar Slacks tape, that's my grandchildren's favorite. So good, go, anyone who can explain that to me, please tell me at the end of the evening. About a month later, I got a letter from old Mr. Hagar, still alive, offering me a, a free pair of custom-made Hagar Slacks. So, who says there are no perks for historians? So we were looking for these trousers, and I don't think we found them, did we? Uh, well, we found a lot of looking, trousers. I don't a lot of trousers, a lot, a lot of, of boots, and... Sort of night at Lyndon has. Johnson's no bathroom. Boots. Huh? No, no boots. Were they not in the room? They no. may have been somewhere else. They were sh- no, just ordinary men's shoes, and I was taken by that. But lots of yeah. hats, stetsons. Lots all of over hats, the place. and it's like a museum. He died in '73 of, of male beauty technology of January 1973 when he died, and like colognes that have not been made for years, and a lot of hair apparatuses. He was always trying to make his hair look thicker. So. <laughs> Okay, That's what we were doing down there, okay. as, I, as well I, as the blistering interrogation. Uh, but he's your war president, not Kennedy, uh, obviously. That's and, what and in Johnson's case, uh, what happened was a couple more serious tapes from August of 64, which are in the book. Johnson was trying not to get involved in Vietnam until after the election against Goldwater. This is what we used and, in our piece, I think. Yeah, a little but, bit of this. Bit, yeah. and, it, and it gets worse because... LBJ gets a call from his defense secretary, Robert McNamara. We've got reports that there was maybe an attack on an American ship in the Gulf of Tonkin. And LBJ decides, I'm running against Goldwater. I can't take the risk of looking as if I'm doing nothing. That night, he, as he says on the tape, bombs hell out of the North Vietnamese, rock slide in Vietnam. All this begins. The poignant thing, and I think some of this came out after the book that we were talking about, but is in this book, is a couple of weeks after Johnson went to Congress, got Gulf of Tonkin resolution, almost unanimous, two houses of Congress, which he and Richard Nixon then used as basically their their sole excuse from Congress to fight war in Vietnam for the next decade, killed almost 60,000 Americans and a million Vietnamese in private, we find, which I write about, a couple of weeks after Johnson does this in August of 64, he finds out there was no attack in the Gulf of Tonkin after all. And so all these people are giving their lives for 10 years based on an attack that never could took place. Some things I love about Johnson, as we have discussed, civil rights, you know, Medicare, a lot of things. 
But on Vietnam, it's like the devil and the angel. He was the devil, and he learns that there was no attack. If he had been more honorable, he would have gone back to Congress and say, in good faith, I thought there was an attack. Turns out there wasn't. But instead, he conceals till the rest of, for the rest of his life that there was no attack after all. So where this fits into the history of Do you hear him War, find out on the tapes... Yes. That he, that there was no attack. And he's talking to McNamara and basically says, you know, I know there was no attack. Oh, my God. And, you know, as a source, and we've got other good sources on some of these other presidents, but being able to to hear a president basically say this war was fought over a pretext that never exists, there's a theme here, folks, and the theme is, And the theme is, as you can see, it's very much alive tonight. We all have to be vigilant. And that is, we've got to really watch out over presidents getting us into wars that may help them for political reasons, and modern ones are tempted. It sounds like the history of war. Yeah. You've described so many, and we, of course, had the Iraq War. Uh Uh-huh. What was that about? Uh Uh-huh. I wanted to ask you about one of my favorite subjects, and that is First Ladies. Uh Uh-huh. Because Big I know part you, of this book. I know. Yeah. Why did you decide to write about first ladies in relation to war? Because a, a big they... part of this book is, you know, not just presidents and why they get into war, but how they deal with it once they're in. Because this is largely a biography, and they almost all have emotional breakdowns of some kind. Every single one of them has a physical breakdown. Really? Uh, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt. The last two years of his life had progressive cardiovascular disease that affected him physically, but at the end, he was not remembering things that he was signing. You know, the blood was, this is primitive heart medicine in 1944, 1945. It's poignant. He was not what he was. Lyndon Johnson, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but he was getting extremely paranoid and always always was prone to depression. And you hear him on these tapes, which I put in this book for the first time because my own books on the Johnson tapes basically end in 1965, so four years of this. And he's getting he's saying things that are almost crazy about people, and he's getting very suspicious. The reason why William Fulbright is against the war is because the Chinese communists paid him off last night. Oh, oh. And he says, you know, Martin Luther King may not be a communist. He's against the war, King is, he's saying but he's controlled completely by them. So by the end, this is someone who was extremely suspicious and not as able to deal with the war as he was before. So getting to first ladies, on the other side, most of these presidents were married to extremely strong women. I mean, Lady Bird, you know, you knew her. Yeah. Uh, She was someone, she had uh, a marriage that was, the best way I can put it is challenging. Uh, but the one thing she did, she knew, she knew her husband's psychiatric foibles. And I think that a statue should be put up to her in Texas, well, I think for wildflowers and some of the great things she yeah. did. You go on highways and you will not see billboards in many places. Were it not for her, you would see them and it would be hideous. But more important than that, Lyndon Johnson, I'm not psychiatrically trained, but this is someone who... A lot of instability. When he got depressed, he would get into bed and pull the covers over his head, and it would be hours or days sometimes. And it was because Lady Bird Johnson knew how to 
pull him down when he got too excited and prop him up when he got too depressed that made it possible for him to function, for instance. Johnson would get wild sometimes about these FBI files. You know, he would, he would get FBI files on his enemies. This is something that I little, hope does not happen in current Nixonian, times. Little Nixonian, huh? Nixonian and maybe later on. But Johnson would get these files and, and look at them uh, and get very excited. You know, this guy's a communist and this guy's a foreign agent. And she would say, Lyndon, you know these files are full of information that may not be verified. Don't take it so seriously. So the point I'm making is that if we get into a war, God forbid, and if it's a male president uh, or a female one, make sure you've got a spouse who has that kind of relationship who will make sure there's a, a sense of reality that's preserved. The, the first ladies of the presidents I covered were all strong like that. Right. Uh, Nancy Reagan, I always thought, eventually was running the country at the near Very the end. Very strong or at least, woman. Or, or at least propping him up. And Barbara Bush And, was and she stayed totally in touch with current events. I had lunch with her once in a while, and I remember... You mean after? Uh, long after. And I remember I sat down to lunch with her, and the first thing she said was, do you know this Tony Weiner?" <laughs> so she, she, she was current she was in her 90s yeah, by then yeah, she but. was uh, well along I, I, I had to say no by the way I, yeah. I, had, I had this um, theory that presidents get paranoid a lot of them because they don't know who they can trust eventually they get to suspect that so and so is going to write about me this one talks about me, yeah, can't tell yeah. any secrets in front of this one, they absolute, leak. Absolutely, And that they eventually get to the point where the only one they really trust is their wives. That's right. And so a lot of marriages improve in the White House. I think that Woodrow Wilson is a perfect example. Well, she ran the country. She too. ran the country because, you know, under the pressure of the war, Woodrow Wilson had this famous stroke, and for the last year and a half, he was not able to function much, and she sort of ran interference and did make a lot of important decisions. But what happened, you know, it, oh, the presidency, I think, makes a president sort of more the way he was at the beginning. You know, you just become more yourself. Not always a good thing. Right. <laughs> uh, and in Woodrow Wilson's case, Woodrow Wilson is remembered as this grand president. And I think if you're looking for a president whose reputation is changing fast, it would be Wilson. Uh, was thought of, you know, winds up on these surveys of historians, something like six, which requires a little cognitive dissonance because Wilson was such a horrible racist, even for the standards of his time. I don't, I don't see how you can just, you know, say, put that in a different category and say, aside from his ugly racism, everything was fine. <laughs> right. And even setting aside the, the racism, I think he was actually a pretty bad war president because... You know, one of, the th- one of the other things you want of a war president is not only that the country supports the war and understand, understands it, which I don't think Americans did particularly of World War I at the beginning of 1917, but you've got to have the, the president explain it and have the political strength to carry it. Woodrow Wilson was never, nomin- was never elected by a serious majority. He barely slunk into office the second time it rested in the end on the votes, uh, according to the analysis, of 
women voters in the states in which they could vote in 1916. And women could vote in some states. You know, it took the 20th Amendment to guarantee the vote. But women voters in California were overwhelmingly against war. And they voted for Woodrow Wilson because he promised, you know, Wilson kept us out of war. The irony was that that was how he was president for another term. But the point I'm making is he was a weak president, didn't explain the war well, and then he, this is the most colossal example of mission creep there ever was, he takes this war which was originally to respond to, you know, naval incidents in the North Atlantic, and suddenly under Wilson this is a war to end all wars and make the world safe for democracy and with an international organization. Not a great model for later presidents. If, if he was number six, what, what is he now? Uh, for me, I, I, I tend not to get involved so much in the surveys, but I think he'd be plunging fast. Plunging I would not want to be in charge of Woodrow Wilson's historical reputation and trying to make the case. You know, you, you mentioned that he didn't explain the war. How important is that rhetorical gift? Totally. Speeches. And, uh, and t- Lincoln... I mean, I'm from Illinois, so I'm sort of patronage for the homeboy. But, uh, I mean, Lincoln, I guess I should probably declare an interest. Uh, The way I got into this racket to begin with was in, I think I was about eight years old, and my parents took me. Anyone here from Illinois? We're all A couple of people we've spoken to. This is really an eastern crowd. Uh, 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 So... At least in the state of Illinois. Anyone been to the Lincoln sites in Springfield? I'll bet more than a few. Right. So I'm not surprised. Two. A few. <laughs> well, a few. In Lincoln, it's in Illinois, it's almost required. But when I was taken, when I was about eight, I was taken into Lincoln's house, uh, which is still there in Springfield. And I was sat down in the chair that Lincoln's... You could Nowadays, you're never allowed to touch anything, but in those days... The guide would say, try Lincoln's chair, and this is where he read to his sons, and I was eight years old, and especially here at the August New York Historical Society, I wish I could claim to you I had asked what were Lincoln's opinions on civil liberties or something like that, (laughs) but I really said, you know, what did Lincoln do to his sons when they didn't behave well? Did did he spank them? Which is a more germane question for me. And the guide said with this disgusted look, no, can you believe it? Lincoln did not believe in discipline. He let those brats run wild through this house. And I heard that. Lincoln was the man for me. I began (laughs) idolizing Lincoln, reading about Lincoln, true story, and reading other books on presidents. So from an early age, I really wanted to be a presidential historian. But when I began to learn about Lincoln as a grown-up and as a war president, he was not a great war president for the first year, and he was very political. For instance... One of the stories I tell in this book is, everyone know who Robert Anderson was, the commander of Fort Sumter at the time the battle took place. Anderson, you know, fought valiantly, as did his troops, and they lost. And they got on a boat, and they left, and they surrendered, and came back to New York City where Anderson lived. And you'd think there might be a thank you note from Lincoln, at least for trying. None. Because Lincoln was a politician, and he thought that a lot of Americans were you know, of the view that maybe Anderson was surrendering deliberately with a southerner. Maybe this was a profile in cowardice. And so Lincoln had nothing to do with Anderson. And Anderson liked Lincoln, and he was deeply hurt. 
So finally, there was a hundred thousand a celebration of Anderson, about a hundred thousand people here in New York in Union Square. His his picture was on every milk truck. I write about it. Every lamp post. They displayed the flag that he had taken down over Fort Sumter. He was wildly popular. And at that moment, Lincoln thought, well, maybe I should sort of, you know, get involved with Anderson. So, so once he was basically kosher, uh, Lincoln had Anderson down to the White House and had a very publicized meeting with Anderson. So the point I'm making, Lincoln the first year, not much. But what made Lincoln a great president, above all, exactly what you're saying, Leslie. He learned to talk about the Civil War, not just legalistically, let's get the North and South together and honor the Constitution, but this is a moral struggle, began talking about it the way he did at Gettysburg. And now we communicate in tweets. Right. Uh, Life has changed and not for the best. Right. Uh, What about peace? Do you write about presidents who kept us out of war? Absolutely. Well, what's Uh, your best example on that? Well, aside from Jefferson, it would be presidents who did not escalate wars beyond the way that they needed to. For instance, Eisenhower. And one thing you do in life when you're an historian is you go back and you're writing about these episodes and you wish you could go back through time and tell these people, listen to what you're doing, you're doing a great thing, keep on doing it. In uh, mid-1950s, The French flamed out in Vietnam, and many people were calling on Americans to get involved in the Vietnam War. Eisenhower was president. He calls in the majority leader of the Senate, whose name was Lyndon Johnson. And he says, you know, I'm being tempted to get involved in a war in, in Vietnam. What do you think, Lyndon? And Johnson says, no, I don't think we should do it because Americans would not support it. Irony. Johnson in the mid-50s, and then you get Johnson a few years later, he's president on these tapes in 1964, and people are talking to him about getting involved in Vietnam, early 64, and he says, what does Vietnam mean to me? You know, people have never heard of this. Talks to Richard Russell, his friend, the Georgia senator, who tells him, you get involved in Vietnam, it's going to take 10 years, it's going to cost 60,000 American lives, and you will lose. And you hear this, and you say, listen to this, wow. Johnson. And he doesn't listen. In February of 1965, Johnson's talking to his defense secretary, Robert McNamara, and he's saying on these secret tapes, I can't think of anything worse than losing the war in Vietnam, and I do not see any way that we can win. This is the same month that Johnson in public is sending idealistic young men and some women from America to go off and give their lives in Vietnam and telling them, we're going to win this war in a year ago and nail the coonskin on the wall. And I heard this and, you know, I wanted to tell Johnson, listen to what you're saying, get out of this war. That summer, 1965, this is the beginning of the war. He's talking to Lady Bird, who records this in her diaries, which she was nice enough to give me the unpublished parts. And Johnson says to his wife, I feel about Vietnam as if I'm on a plane that's crashing and I do not have a parachute. And you just wish you could go back through time. And You're emotionally involved. I absolutely. wish I could go back. You get yeah, absolutely. swept course, up in this. Tell us a little bit about your research. 
how in ten, it took you ten years to write ten this years. book. Ten years. Did you and go by to the way, all the? Could I call on my publisher, Molly Stern, to stand up, please? Who is here in the front row? Thank you. And also my my dear friend and literary agent, the great Esther Newberg, and legendary. Stand up, Esther. Please stand up, please. Thank you. But did you go to all the presidential libraries? Did uh, you travel to these places? And, and went through, and, I, and on the Johnson, needless to say, I listened to 400 more hours of Johnson tapes and found all sorts of stuff uh, that had not been in any book. But and you love it. Of course I love it. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in it. And I, and I never understand why, you know, it's fine to hire research assistants, but if I did this, I'd lose the most fun part. But the best part of this is... For instance, uh, not only just the presidents and not only finding out stuff that had not been known before. Uh, I mean, for instance, with, with Harry Truman, for instance, and this is germane this week. Uh, I talked to a law clerk of Chief Justice Fred Vinson, a name that probably has not been on your tongues, if it was ever at all. He served in the late 40s and early 50s. Truman appointed him. He was his poker buddy. And at the beginning of 1952, Truman calls up Vincent and says, I've got an idea. You know, there might be a steel strike. There's a war in Korea. I think we should seize the steel mills. And he said, Fred, you know, you're on the Supreme Court. You know, let's just say if I were to seize the steel mills, could I get away with it with your fellow justices? <laughs> what is your feeling about where things would go? And Vincent says, oh, hell, Harry, just seize the steel mills. They'll go along with it were at wartime. And so Truman did it, and rightly, from my point of view, because I'm terrified of too much presidential power, uh, especially nowadays, uh, he tells, it, it, the, the court ruled against this and kept Truman from doing it. point I'm making is this, this was a gross breach of the distance there should be between a president and justices of the Supreme Court. You move it ahead, and I've got this in the book also, Anyone remember the name of Abe Fortas? Oh, yeah. Well, this is an even more literate crowd than I realized. Uh, Abe Fortas was put by LBJ on the court, June 1965, not by accident, exactly the same day that Johnson began escalating in Vietnam because Johnson knew that he was going to be asking for a lot of things, expanding his power that the Supreme Court might rule against he wanted basically his agent, his personal friend, Abe Fortas, as a justice on the court, to, to report to him what the justices were saying among themselves, what they might do to him if he did certain things in wartime, just like Truman, basically his spy. And LBJ, as usual, could not even leave it there, which was a gross breach. He then begins calling on Fortas to write speeches for him as president, Supreme Court justice, to help him choose bombing targets in the Situation Room, which Fortas also did, uh, to advise Johnson on his blind trust, which was not very blind. Uh, And so this is a breach of a kind you should never see. And it's germane this week because now Justice Kavanaugh, uh, from my own point of view, and here we're getting into current events for a minute, you know, whatever you think about whether he should be on the court or not, whatever you think about the process that led to that, there's something else that really makes me nervous. And this is not a partisan thing. This is as someone who 
worries about presidential power. Everyone know about the Law Review article he wrote in 2009, Minnesota Law Review, in which Kavanaugh took just about the most extreme position you can take on allowing presidents to do what they feel like and don't interfere with them legally. Presidents maybe should not have to respond to subpoenas. Uh, Leslie was one of the foremost reporters during Watergate. It was a very different world. Shouldn't have to respond to subpoenas. Presidents should not be investigated, he writes. Maybe presidents should not have to be indicted. That's something that's a little bit more mainstream. Sounds like Nixon. Uh, yeah, but also presidents might be able to use pardons to help himself themselves. This is what our new justice has written. And on top of that, when Kavanaugh now has gone to the court, he's gone after a closeness and indebtedness to the president who sent him there, who gave him the strategy he should use in his testimony, who knows a lot of his secrets. So all I'm saying is I'm not predicting there will be a breach of that distance between a justice and a president, but what I am suggesting is that we have to be very vigilant because we can't turn back to the days of Fortas and Vincent because in this case it could be a lot more dire You reported on U.S. v. Nixon, July and August 1974. That saved the country because there were eight justices who ruled against Nixon unanimously, including three whom Nixon had appointed, who stood up and said, I'm going to go against the person who appointed me. One recused himself, which is William Rehnquist, who had served in Nixon's Justice Department. We could be in a situation in which a majority now of five justices, including Kavanaugh, who does have a closeness to Donald Trump right now, could choose to rule on a Trump case that could have very grave consequences for presidential power, in my view. Well, being a person without... And that that having been said, everyone have a great evening. (laughs) Being a person with no opinions whatsoever, I'm going to change the subject. Okay, okay. You had mentioned Eisenhower, and uh, you had talked about how the, the historical uh, opinion of Wilson has gone down. Eisenhower has gone up? W- Wilson down, uh, Eisenhower up. I mean, but what about you? Your uh, opinion yeah, of very much from my point of view because, I mean, and we were talking earlier, it was so smart what you were asking so characteristically. I was that, just trying to say Well, no, it's true. Know. You know, we, historians, it's all we've got is, is telling what we really think. Uh, it's like in Texas, you know, what Sam Rayburn used to say about something said something, and he said, and also has the added added advantage of being true. (laughs) Added advantage of being true. But the point is that those presidents who think the glory is all there for war presidents, I really think the glory should be there for presidents who keep us out of war. And that's one reason why I opened this book by telling the story of Thomas Jefferson keeping us out of the War of 1812, for instance, and Eisenhower as well. And the way I talk about what happened with the War of 1812, you'd know at least the beginning of the story, but it's how I open the book, which is that uh, James Madison, although he was the guy, or at least one of the guys at the time of the Constitution, who wanted to make sure that we stayed out of war as much as possible. So the Constitution says war should be declared by Congress, not a president. He was the one who took us into our first major war. And he did that, although half of this country was against a war with Britain. Uh, The country was not united. Uh, Half the Congress was really against it. But 
Madison decided he'd like to be a war president. So he took us in. He had this great uniform with a sword uh, and a, you know, this wonderful hat with a cockade. You know, he looked like, you know, actually something out of Gilbert and Sul- Sullivan, but he thought it <laughs> made him look very handsome. So got us into this war that Americans really did not support, was badly fought. We didn't get our war aims, which were to basically steal Canada and stop the Brits from attacking our ships once and for all. And it's almost a morality play because the way he paid for this was the scene that I opened the book with, which is everyone knows what happened in August 1814. The British came to Washington and burned the White House. And Dolly fled. Sorry for myth, she didn't flee with the portrait of George Washington, which was actually taken out by someone else. I, I love Dolly. I hate to take that away from her, but you know, we, ha- we have to honor truth. But anyway, it begins with a scene. The British are burning the White House, and Madison is running through the forest in northern Virginia looking for Dolly, who had left on a different track, and they're looking for each other in the wilderness. And they finally, within about two days, you know, Madison is running because the Brits wanted to hang him. You know, they wanted a trophy, and he was a fugitive from them. And they finally wind up in this small town in Maryland called Brookville. And here Madison is dining with other boarders in a boarding house because he went from house to house. And this was a Quaker town. The Quakers especially hated this war. So he finally gets lodging in this boarding house, sitting at a long table, the president of the United States. You mean they wouldn't take him in? They would not take him in to the point that finally... He was with some others in his party, and he had to sort of hide in the darkness so they wouldn't see it was the hated Madison. And he's sitting at this table in the boarding house with all these people who hate his war and are asking, why did you do this? And This is terrible. And so it's sort of rough justice for getting us involved in a war that we did not need. Final point, what was the most unpopular war in American history? It was not Vietnam. It was the War of 1812. Mm. What was the first war we lost was not Vietnam. It was the War of 1812. Mm. Anyway, as we used to say in the third grade, read the book and find out. (laughs) We have uh, some questions from the audience. And I was going to ask you this very question. In your opinion, has there been a good war, a war we really should have gone into and that the public supported? Totally. Uh, Civil War, uh, that was a noble cause, and that was a war, just to correct certain people who talk about it, that was not a war merely to reunite the country. That was a war against the evil of slavery. That was a moral struggle. That was a war that anyone should feel proud to have their, as poignant as the stories were, proud to have their family member. If they had to lay down their lives, that was a noble cause. World War II, uh, That's the difference that leadership makes. 1940, had almost anyone else, any other, let's say the Democrats had won in 1932 and Franklin Roosevelt had lost the nomination. President would have been John Garner, Mm -hmm. maybe Al Smith, maybe a guy named Newton Baker. What if any of them had been president in 1940? They would not have done what Roosevelt did, which, which was with great political courage, He's running against Wendell Wilkie, who's an isolationist, isolationist country. Wilkie and Roosevelt were just about tied in 1940. Someone who was a weaker president would have basically said, all right, I'll promise 
no war because that's the only way I can win the election. Roosevelt instead, with great brilliance and courage, says we have to rearm because that's the best way of staying out of war, scaring Hitler into not messing with us, which is indeed what he did. And if you had had any of those other people as president who did not rearm in 1940, then by the time we finally had to get involved in the war in 1941, we would not have been able to help our allies win. We would be living in a very ugly, violent world as a result. So noble war, noble president. Although Roosevelt, as I've written in another book, I really wish he had bombed the concentration camps. He was very slow on the Holocaust. He was horrible on the Japanese-Americans. But that's what makes leaders interesting is because it's never one thing or the other. Right. Here's another FDR question. Did FDR know about Pearl Harbor prior to the event because of east wind... East Wind intercepts, thus drawing the U.S. into war. Right. There is an argument that Roosevelt knew that the Japanese would attack and encouraged an attack and allowed an attack because that would allow angry America, that would stampede angry isolationist Americans to support a war that they would otherwise not support. I don't think that's right at all. Uh, I think all sorts of reasons that. There were other ways of doing it. Roosevelt loved the Navy. You know, you don't, it's not the best way to start with a colossal goof that a president has made that leads to about 3,000 Americans killed at Pearl Harbor. That having been said, however, two things. Number one, he did make this enormous mistake. You know, that fleet about a year earlier was at San Diego where it was much easier to, to defend than it would have been to have them at Pearl Harbor. He was responsible why did for he the move attack, them? he moved them because he thought it was a sort of a shield. The Japanese would not dare move into the Pacific because we had our ships there as sort of a, a line of defense. So he made a, a terrible mistake. And I love Roosevelt mostly, but actually I, I give some news in this book over some aspect of that. And that is that after Pearl Harbor he was terrified that Americans would focus on the fact that he had allowed this atrocity to to take place by putting the ships there and not defending the Americans who were in Hawaii. And this is a a guy who's trying to gather his power and be the leader of a nation at war. So he basically decided, let's make sure that I don't get the blame because this is going to weaken me as a war president, and that's a national asset, which it was. Let's make sure the, the blame goes to the local commanders, which they deserved a little bit, but not as much as he was heaping on them. So what he did was he singled out these local commanders who did not defend Hawaii as much as they should have on the day of Pearl Harbor, absolutely right there. But they were not responsible for moving these ships from San Diego to, to Hawaii. They were not responsible for not giving orders to these local commanders on let's say, December 6th, that a lot of reason that you should fear a Japanese attack. So guess what Roosevelt did, just to go back to what I was saying about the Supreme Court. Um, He got a very malleable member of the Supreme Court named Roberts, knew that this guy was very susceptible to manipulation by a president, calls him in and says, how would you like to become famous as the, the chief person to write a report on Pearl Harbor? 
And Robert says, it's wartime, of course, it's my honor. And so Roosevelt keeps on meeting with him and essentially says to him, make sure you put the blame not on you know, me and the people around me because that would be a danger to national security. Make sure you put it on these two guys, Kimmel and Short, who were responsible locally in Hawaii. And those two guys were court-martialed and you know, they were pariahs for the rest of their lives. Oh. You know, they made bad mistakes, but they were outcasts. Um, Mm, And and Roosevelt escaped the blame. You know, I think, you know, if any of us were president, I see why Roosevelt did it. It was probably a good thing that he did not begin this war with people angry at him for having screwed up at Pearl Harbor. So long response, yes, he did screw up at Pearl Harbor, but no, he did not cause it deliberately. Yeah, you're giving him a lot. I think you love him. You're very uh, emotional. I don't love him on the internment or the Holocaust. Uh, but overall. Okay. All right, here's another. So how... Oh, I thought this was a different question. I'm trying to stay away from Trump. How Come would on, you... We, okay, we I'm, I'll do it. So far, how would you... Is there anyone you, who feels strongly we should not talk about an incumbent president? Except me. Okay. All right. All right. So how would you classify Trump, president of war or peace? Uh, so far, peace, and may it ever be thus. Uh, what I'm worried about is, remember I was talking about presidents getting tempted? Yes. That's, well, the, the problem the with president, you know, a president now can do a war single-handedly almost overnight, as we have seen. And what I'm worried about, and let's not talk about it in Trump's terms, because I don't want to predict what he would do or not do, and it's all hypothetical, but let's just talk about modern presidents. Uh, a president in the early 19th century, you know, Madison wanted a war. He had to go to the House and Senate, and there was a long debate. He had to persuade them why it was a good idea. The war declaration passed narrowly. Anyone here, we can make this a brief trivia contest, anyone know what year was the last declaration of war by Congress in American history? Anyone? Can I see a hand? Yes, sir. 41-42, it was against Hitler and the Japanese, then the next year against a couple of, of countries in Central Europe. Wow. So no war declarations since 1942. Uh, as a historian, I just don't know. Any wars since 1942? <laughs> uh, so something. the problem is that a president can get us involved in a major war almost single-handedly. And to get conspiratorial, you were asking about Pearl Harbor God forbid there should ever be a terrorist incident. Uh, We are in danger of an unscrupulous president who wants to increase his numbers or win an election, get us involved in a major war. And the conspiracy theorist who predicted that this would happen was Donald Trump. Donald Trump was sending out tweets in 2011 and 2012, and guess what they said? They said... Watch out, Barack Obama is going to get us involved in a war to win the 2012 election. He said it over and over again. And hasn't happened, and thank God it hasn't, and I hope it never does, but I'm nervous if you have a president drawing that connection between a major war and winning an election. I hope he never draws that connection. Wow, we're going to walk out of here smiling, aren't right. we? Right. <laughs> uh, anyone who was worrying about buying I, dinner, I've removed your appetite so much there's no, no, no danger. Uh, this may be the last. We'll see. 
America has yet to elect a woman as president. In your research... Which, which is unbelievable. May I just say one thing? The whole purpose of the amendment in 1920 was that you quickly have women voters, which would lead to a lot of women candidates and a lot of women in office. And if you just were to talk to the people of 1920, they would be completely astonished and horrified that here we are two years against, uh, away from the centennial of that amendment and not happy. Well, talk to any woman who was an adult when the women's movement started in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Or, or a man who liked the women's movement. Or a man who liked there are the a women's few of us. movement. The few men who liked the women's uh-huh. movement. Well. Um, I think we're all astonished that in, there hasn't been a woman right. president since 1972. Right. Right. But this is the question. In your research, did you learn anything about how women leaders internationally respond and how they lead their nations? Are they different from men, or do they take on the same qualities? It's interesting. Maybe I should have done more in the book, but I really didn't because it didn't fall in. Can we do one more where I can actually give an answer? But Uh, but thank you. Maybe next book. um, um, Okay. Uh, 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 How would you rate William McKinley as a commander-in-chief during the Spanish-American War? Not not much. Uh, (laughs) And... uh, and the main reason is that, you know, one theme of this book, as I've been suggesting, is we've got a really bad history of getting into big wars on false pretexts. Uh, as I suggested, Polk and the Mexicans, uh, McKinley and the sinking of the Maine, which was not sunk by the Spanish, LBJ and the Gulf of Tonkin attack, which was not an attack. Uh, and There's a problem with that, aside from the fact that it's against the wishes of the founders who hope that our leaders would be honest and only get involved in a war if it was absolutely necessary. And that is that all this led to a suspicion about our leaders that I hope one day we will be able to escape. For instance, my son is here, my second son, Cyrus, he's in the second row Am I allowed to ask him to stand up since he had to live through this book for 10 years? Cyrus, do you mind? Uh, Cyrus is a history major at Williams College uh, his last year. So anyway, I don't know if you remember this, but the first time we went down to Ground Zero was maybe about a year or two after 9-11. And there was a group of people chanting 9-11 was an inside job. They were chanting over and over again. And Cyrus was probably six years old, and your brother was maybe eight. And they were asking me what an inside job was, and I explained what that was. And they they were saying, why are they saying that 9-11 was an inside job? So what I'm saying is, you know, Polk may have thought, okay, well, the ends justify the means. You know, we're a continental nation, and I had to lie about Mexico. And McKinley might have said, well, we became a world power because of the Spanish floor... uh, Spanish War, Mm -hmm. and even if I wasn't entirely truthful about the main, ends justify the means. And Lyndon Johnson, sadly, for the rest of his life, would say Vietnam was a noble cause, and if I had to lie a little bit about the Gulf of Tonkin, okay, that's the way life happens. And the problem is, not only is it a corruption of everything this nation was supposed to be in the idealistic gleam of the founders in 1787, 
but it also makes it so much harder for a president to go to the nation when there actually is a reason for a major war because these other guys have cried wolf so often. And it makes us a nastier and bleaker nation and one that if the day ever comes, as it once may, when we have to fight a major war for our own security, it's going to make it that much harder for that president to do that. In any case, to try to stay on time, could I thank our wonderful moderator, Leslie Stahl, the famous legendary. This has been been great. Thank you for taking the... Thank you for taking it a little bit easy on me. And, and thank you all so much for coming. But what about thanking Michael? Thank you. Brilliant. Brilliant. It sounds like a fabulous. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.